I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. Today, we continue our conversation with Margaret Beale Spencer, the Marshall Field IV Professor of Urban Education at the University of Chicago. In part one, Professor Spencer explained in powerful narrative her own history and how her personal path led to the topics central to her life's work, identity, resiliency, and competency building within a racially, ethnically, and economically diverse society. Today, we dive deeper into Dr. Spencer's scientific research on human development and ask her for guidance to address the elephant in so many rooms today, racism. As kids, faculty, and staff have come back together in their respective school communities, they don't necessarily share a sense of urgency about writing or even addressing historical wrongs against black people. Where's the most important place to start? Before we begin, though, I want to tell you about another podcast called Notes from the Backpack. It's brought to you by National PTA and hosted by Helen Westmoreland and Lawanda Tony. Helen heads PTA's Center for Family Engagement and has a two-year-old daughter. Lawanda is PTA's Director of Communications and has a seven-year-old son. Together, in each episode of Notes from the Backpack, they invite an expert to the show and address a topic related to children's learning, development, and success in and out of school. This season, they're tackling questions we need to know the answers to, including... How do I choose online resources that will actually support my kids during school closures? How can I help my child get the assistance they need to thrive right now? And how do I talk with my kids about some of the bigger issues of 2020, like racial justice and the upcoming election? Notes from the Backpack has listeners in every state and in more than 55 countries. If you're not already listening, you should be. Check out Notes from the Backpack wherever you listen to podcasts or at notesfromthebackpack.com. And one more item. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate it. If you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's the second part of my conversation with Margaret Beale Spencer. I want to ask you about resiliency as well. But I feel like to, to be able to, to really understand your perceptions on resilience um, beyond the lessons of resilience that you heard first from your mother and her family, and then you surely saw um, all around you, you know, in, in other experiences in life, we all bring all of our experiences to bear. Um, I think it's important to first understand your PVEST model for assessing context through experience. What is it? Um, how, does the, uh, how does the stool, the four-part stool work, particularly around, um, uh, you know, with, with parents, educators, healthcare workers, um, and even police? T tell me about the PVEST model. Oh, sure. Uh, PVEST stands for a phenomenal logical variant of ecological systems theory. And yes, it's a mouthful. I thought <laughs> well, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you renamed it PVEST then. Yes, my students over the years, it was PVEST for them. I wanted to keep the word, the term, uh, p a phenomenological, phenomenology in the title 
because it is it you know it comes out it comes out of philosophy of course it's a philosophical term it simply refers to the various ways that we perceive that we take in meaning that we come to understand and i for me as humans that is key from day one at birth we take in information we are inferring about the other we are inferring and experiencing context so for me phenomenology is also virtually synonymous with our humanity with perceiving with, with taking in information but what's really key here as well is what you do with the information that you take in that how you experience if you will that information relative to what you do in terms of normal human challenge and given what you do how that becomes a regularized way of being called an identity hmm. and it's all pvs is saying it's a phenomenological variant of ecological systems theory meaning that it's simply a theory that tries to get us to understand what this perceptual pr- process is about in terms of taking in information which allows you to make sense of your ecology or your context be it first the context of a mother with her infant or a family with a child or a community with its children or school and school uh, administrators and teachers with its students that's responsible for so how you take in information and as you're navigating space and engaging your various tasks what you do when something comes up that's a conflict that you have to deal with and our humanity is about conflict normal mm. tasks right that's that causes conflicts but in terms of what you do in response that has to do with your level of vulnerability which is also part of our humanity chris mm. everybody is has some level of vulnerability as i shared before it's the balance or it's the imbalance between supports and privileges available versus the risks and the challenges that one is having or one is burdened by so you always have birth a uh, both the dilemma in this country in particular is that there has never been a balance for people of color there's always been an imbalance it's called structured inequality and it's for me it's really important because very often there are people who don't want to see themselves and whites in particular as vulnerable they want to view vulnerability and a status of risk as equivalent as synonymous when they are not our humanity dictates some level of vulnerability we are experiencing that right now with covid-19 no matter what the messages out of out of um washington we know walking around the street no matter your race ethnicity color or class without a mask exposed that it increases your vulnerability it increases uh your uh possibility of coming down with the disease that's yes. for everyone no one 
no one is exempt from that unless you have um, an immune system that we've not heard or felt yet <laughs> that makes you special. But you see what I'm saying? That's part of our humanity. But if you already have had a history, a generational history of structured inequality, that means that we started out in February with a higher level of vulnerability because of hundreds of years of structured inequality. So there are some people who could have left the city for their summer home without too many other people around. That lowers your vulnerability, right? Whereas other people who are stuck in a tenement building, you know, with a 100 people in a 10-floor building, that's a very different level of vulnerability. The disease is hitting all of us humans in the same way, but some humans are more vulnerable because of hundreds of years of structured inequality. And that's why the stats look the way they do. And that's what we have to deal with that right now. It was not just the uh, uh, individuals bringing uh, slave ships over here during the Middle Passage with the, in essence, millions of deaths. But what happens now when we contribute to structured inequality, thus making human vulnerability different, right? So when something like COVID-19 hits, it hits differentially. Therefore, people are hit, groups are hit with a different impact. That's what I mean by humanity, i.e. we're all vulnerable, but structured inequality makes the experience of vulnerability different. We don't do research in that way because we don't want to deal with the fact that, for me, as far as I'm concerned, part of the risk factor of vulnerability for some whites really has to do with not acknowledging that nap, that uh, knapsack of privilege. Hmm. So if we don't talk about the privilege of some and only talk about the risk conditions of challenges for others, well, of course, you're going to find significant differences. But if the policies that are generated don't deal with the fundamental issue of structured inequality, that fallacy of some people being better than others remains part of our science, remains part of the policies, which means that the policies are asking the wrong questions. The policies have to address the problem of structured inequality that makes human vulnerability levels different to begin with. And that's what we're not talking about. The policies are asking the wrong questions, in your words. And in listening to you, I would maybe add that uh, the, the policies might not be asking the uncomfortable questions, the challenging questions. Um, and therefore, we end up uh, without ultimate uh, you know, changed policies and, and resolutions and answers that, that can start to address uh, some of the many things that you're talking about. In the context of what you are discussing, in the context of humanity and vulnerability and structured inequality, what is resiliency? How does it connect with identity and competence? Can children fully form one without the others? Resiliency for me, as I defined it, define it, is getting good outcomes irrespective of significant challenge. 
So the significant challenge part is offset by supports that sometimes researchers don't recognize. Like for me, you know, having, you know, um, having a mother who really enjoyed reading and took traditions from her own family, even though truncated, uh, her situation was in terms of losing both her parents, um, you know, at 13. But there were traditions of that family that she continued with her own family. So even though, you know, we were from modest means, there were traditions, there were stories, there were ways of thinking and being that functioned as protective factors for us. So yes, there are risks, but then there are protective factors that are important as well. Let me give you an example. Please. There, um, we, I've always tried to do applied research. I do basic science, and then I use those insights uh, and apply them in settings in order to not take advantage of being a scientist, but use the science to improve the outcomes and processes uh, for everyone. In the case of youngsters who are from, say, low-resource families, we did a large study in two states uh, with a very large sample of children um, who, these were adolescents, um, mm-hmm. who basically came from low-resource families. How, we, how did we know they were low-resource? Because very often uh, social scientists uh, define low-resource at the school level. We asked students to bring to school documentation that their, pers- that their families met certain financial criteria. If the kids did not bring the paperwork back, we went to homes in the evening with portable uh, Xerox machines in order to document that they, in fact, met the um, criteria uh, for uh, economic disadvantage. So once we got the information, um, we looked at those kids by grades. And the children who were already A-B students, we told them, because you're A-B students and you come from this particular family type, we're going to give you, we're going to give you monthly, a monthly stipend. As long as you keep your A-B grades, we'll keep giving you a monthly stipend. Just Mm -hmm. keep doing well. The kids who were C-D students, we told them, you're not doing well in school and we know you can do better. So we're going to give you a monthly stipend. We gave them a stipend, however, every two weeks. We, we felt that that would be more incentivizing for them because they were at a different level of vulnerability. They were already mm-hmm. getting poor grades. We gave them a, uh, stipends every two weeks, but they had to come to after school programming. What we wanted to do was to meet their economic needs i.e. giving them a monetary stipend, but we also needed to help them develop a new identity. So what we did was to train these kids to be uh, health providers. So (laughs) we gave them twice monthly stipends to come to after-school programming to see the impact on their school engagement to see if they could, we can get them to maintain and ideally to improve their performance. I will tell you it made a difference. 
Many of the kids, in fact, in a couple of cases, I would say a few cases, we found that kids were coming to the after-school programming to become health educators, (laughs) Uh, but they weren't going to school. So we had to remind them, no, 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 this is a package. This is after school, so you must go to school. (laughs) We talked to parents who said that these youngsters were now uh, changing family health habits. Uh, that they wow. were in doing things to acquire a new identity because we were t- calling them health educators and we were training them to be health educators. The idea was to train them in an area that was a little different from what they were getting every day in school, but to generally give them an identity that would have them feel as if more strongly that they could do this. And they did. We had kids who happened to see these students who ended up you know, a few years later, graduating and going to four-year colleges. Hmm. And so we knew that the monetary incentive was making a difference. The point here, Chris, is that if uh, economic, if you will, inequality and its impact on families was having an impact on adolescents, well, then give them what they need to feel good. Adolescents, no matter how much money your parents earn, they always need money. They always need things. <laughs> That's a part of being an adolescent, right? Yeah, well, need need versus want, we can have a whole other conversation on that. But yes, I take your point. Yes, okay. And so if kids are still adolescents and they still have these needs, how can we address their needs but also get the outcomes that we know will guarantee their futures? My point here is that too often we don't understand the needs and respond to those needs. We simply infer something about the group and we don't infer anything about the strengths that can be capitalized on. So my point here is that for the kids who are doing well, those are my resilient kids. I told them to AB kids, you're doing well, pat them on the back with a monthly check, keep doing well, right? And the kids who were not doing well, we simply had to give them more. And that's the point of human vulnerability. If you want to change the imbalance of vulnerability, that is too many risks and challenges and not enough supports, right? Then through policy and practice, you give them more supports that make sense to decrease their vulnerability and to increase the probability of resilience. That's how you handle that. But you have to use supports that make sense not supports that you think matter because you're the expert on the outside, but phenomenologically, right, from their own perceptions and experience, get a sense of what individuals need. And that's not what policy does all the time. It's a look from the outside as opposed to perceptions, okay, given experience in varying contexts from the inside. And I would say in terms of as a professional, that's a major drawback. So if you want good outcomes in the face of challenge, you have to understand from the individual's perspective what the needs are. And what Black Lives Matter is telling us right now, that structured inequality based upon race in particular has to stop. So an Amy Cooper, because she has her dog off a leash in Central Park in a birding area, thinks it's her right to then call the police if someone calls her out because she is white, she feels she can do that, that can't happen anymore. The execution of a black man, George Floyd, 
while he's begging for his life because he doesn't deserve the treatment, no one does, and to be executed publicly, publicly like that, that, is, that, that, that can't go on. So people are saying from the inside, these things need to stop. There must be an interrogation of everyone's contribution to this stable hmm. system of structured inequality based upon race and also not acknowledging the problem of the problem of privilege the problem of privilege based upon race that is literally 400 years old it has to stop it has to be interrogated the un- people need to become comfortable with the uncomfortableness of looking at oneself in the mirror and saying that one in one way or the other I'm a part of this and I need to interrogate. I need the self. I need to, in essence, move in a different direction and claim my full humanity, which is the fact that it's shared with others who look different on the outside, but we all share our humanity under the skin. So um, that's a, that's a big dose of a change that's needed in this country. And how I remain optimistic is that I look at the children, I look at the young people, I, I believe we can do better. I believe that, you know, um, whiteness does not, in essence, mean, you know, pure, unadulterated evil for some people. I think it's simply missed opportunities to claim full humanity and to get support to deal with the uncomfortableness. But the unrealizing un- the uncomfortableness and uh, getting help with it, I think, is important because that experience, I think, can be life-changing. I think the downside of privilege for me is that people don't learn to struggle with uncomfortableness. Privilege means then that life for some people is full of what I call consonants. It's an evenness. You don't have to deal with these barriers 24-7. But then when that happens... You don't learn how to struggle with challenge. That's a downside of privilege. So I think right now, given that COVID-19 has all of us indoors and struggling with loneliness, etc., all kinds of, you know, frailties, I just think that um, being privileged does not help with that because I think people have had generations of having to cope with adversity. You've developed those muscles, and that's a good thing. But that's because dissonance makes you struggle and makes you find solutions. But the downside of privilege is that you don't have adaptive coping methods. What you develop is a sense of self that, you know, is normally, if you will, always on the positive side, as opposed to realizing that conditions were structured to guarantee that you're always on the positive side of this, um, of this balance. And uh, it becomes, I think, very problematic during periods like this when all humans are struggling with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. The, the ability to have and show and build on resiliency when one hasn't had the benefit of struggling with uncomfortableness, to borrow your phrase, um, there, there has to be um, a, a big gap there. And, and what a powerful phrase, um, the, the interrogation of every one of our contributions, the interrogation of everyone's contributions. 
um, th- that is the interrogation that, uh, that, that likely needs to occur. Professor Spencer, I, I should take advantage of the conversation with you and draw upon your one-time history uh, as a would-be pharmacist to ask you for a prescription. Lots of kids and faculty and staff uh, around the country may be coming back together um, in schools with a different sense of urgency about some of the things that you are talking about, about righting wrongs. And some school leaders are already falling on their swords and apologizing and forming task forces and forms for their communities on race, and and the the list goes on. Um, Is there... Is there advice, is there a prescription that you might give to schools, to teachers, to administrators, even to parents um, to consider how school, what schools should do, understanding, of course, that each school um, faces a context that is different? I think there's a need for conversations, very candid conversations, uh, both in schools and also at home. Um, and I, I really feel that's baseline. It has to start there. I think, um, that's, that's why, that's why, that's the best I can say that it has to start there. I think we also have to have a conversation about reparations as well. I think there is such extreme inequality in terms of, um, resource accessibility in this country. Reparations must be a part of that process. You know, um, how do we access resources to, to right some of the wrongs that have been perpetrated on uh, communities of color in this country over the last 400 years? So it's going to cost. It's going to cost psychologically. It's going to cost, you know, economically. And it is a good thing because the cost is going to uh, accrue uncomfortableness. And so, again, it's not real. It's not real for too many people unless they feel that uncomfortableness. So I just think that there's an opportunity to have discussions, you know, about uncomfortableness and how it's been perpetrated on certain communities over 400 years and how it needs to be actively righted in terms of access um you know, uh, the access of resources and opportunity for everyone. And the thing about this is that it's, it's not, it's not easy, but there's mm. opportunity. When you consider white women in particular, white women know what it means to be discriminated against, uh, as a function in that case of gender. So at the same time, white women have the opportunity to talk about the pain and the hurt, pardon me, w- women have two big X chromosomes and men have one X and one Y, but what it means just for that one difference, what it means for them in terms of the hurt. So therefore, they can communicate even more so the hurt that comes from just uh, being mistreated as a function of difference, of skin color only, right? And so I think, Dealing with that in terms of showing and sharing how that is hurt, I think that's really important and is a step. So I think for me, white women in particular have an opportunity uh, to share, you know, that, um, you know, being discriminated against about something as arbitrary as gender, you mm. know, 
And if you exacerbate that by, you know, race, ethnicity, um, you know, a place of origin, then I think some communication of that uncomfortableness should come through and should communicate then the importance of taking a stand uh, when it comes to structured inequality uh, based upon these other uh, categories of difference as well. But I think there is an opportunity right within the family, right within the home. You know, my seven-year-old granddaughter, you know, we read a book and there's clear discrimination based upon, you know, gender, you know, and she's a little feminist, I guess, but she's real clear. You know, that doesn't make any sense. And similarly, when it comes to race, ethnicity, she would say, she'll say things like, why does anyone think someone would, want, would, would wish to work for nothing when it's not their idea to do that? She is very articulate, you know, and understanding that. So why big people don't understand that? She is very, she's made, in essence, very confused by that proclivity. So it's all I'm saying is that, you know, within homes, we just need to tell the truth. And I think it's doable because I think it means that, you know, we all can own and celebrate the shared humanity and we can all critique, critique uh, those systems that guarantee inequality and be more willing to pay the price in terms of reparations for writing uh, centuries of misdoing. And I believe that we can do this because I believe people, most people are fairly rational that narcissistic uh, pathology or pathological narcissism may be a problem for some, but I think the majority of people are on a continuum that's a lot less that ex as extreme as uh, pathological narcissism. I think we have the capacity to have empathy for, to understand the status of the other. And like I said, in terms of white communities, white women in particular, you know, have that opportunity, and it is an opportunity. In doing research for this conversation on one of the sites about you, uh, the National Academy of Education, your bio says that your life experiences, quote, continue to inform and guarantee insights about human vulnerability, which bridge to resiliency options no matter, one, no matter one's placement on the planet no matter one's placement on the planet. Now, when I read it, I felt like that was just one of the most inspiring statements I'd ever read. And after this conversation, now I understand it even better. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the conversation and the work that you have and continue to do. Thank you, Chris. Again, I very much appreciated the opportunity and hope uh, the perspective shared um, might be helpful to others because I do believe we can do this. We can make this a much better world. Thank you. That was my conversation with Margaret Beale Spencer. My thanks to Professor Spencer for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.